0: So David has been preaching a series called Tangled, and I have to confess to you that I wasn't here when he started it, so I wasn't sure that he wasn't talking about the Disney version of Rapunzel uh, that I was very familiar with because I have a daughter in musical theater, and so if Disney has made a song, it has been sung in our house a lot, a whole lot. And so when I sort of caught up that what David was talking about was the seven deadly sins, I had to do some more homework. Uh, there's only seven? What's deadly about them? And so sort of went back and, and, and understood that the seven deadly sins are the, the sermon titles that David has been uh, uh, working with for the past six weeks. And he saved one for uh, next week. And I understand that we're talking about anger and sloth and covetousness and lust and greed and envy, and uh, and then next week he's going to talk about gluttony. Ironic that he saved that for Lent, but nonetheless, uh, he's going to talk about gluttony during Lent. And so I'm going, okay, what's so deadly about those sins? And I, I went back and and in Proverbs 6, that's, that's where we find that list. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can find that, uh, that list. He says in Proverbs six sixteen, the Scripture says, There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run to evil, a false witness that others lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers." There are seven deadly sins. The Catholics would say that perhaps they are the root of every other kind of sin, but, but when we say seven deadly sins, we get it. They made movies about this. There was even a cartoon in the paper a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of days ago, uh, which pictures these monks talking to each other, "'Your wrathful gluttonous, lustful covetous, slothful and filled with envy.'" Have you no pride? And so, he reduced the seven <laughs> deadly sins to a punchline. Well, just in case we missed the list, Paul, writing in Galatians, says, oh, that's not all of them. Galatians 5, he expands the list. I guess it's adjusted to inflation in today's times, but uh, he adds a few more. If you look at uh, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 20, he Has a whole long list, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Wow. And then sort of the point of all of that, he says that these things are deadly in themselves, but it's more about the fact that they are a lifestyle. They are a way of doing things. Because when Paul at the end of his list says that the person who does these things, practices these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God, we wouldn't want to live under a fear that, oh, okay, I, I, I envied so I can't go to heaven. Oh, I, I did. Uh, that's not what it's about. Because he contrasts those in a few verses. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and he gives another list. And so we've been working through these these lists of things, and and I get why it's called Tangled. It's because we can get wrapped up in them. We can get focused in them. And so what I chose to do this week was to see what it would take to get untangled. And this little graphic that we've had uh, throughout the sermon series had us what it was to be tangled and we found this one this week that this is kind of what we're trying to do. How do, how do we get untangled? How do we get out from under all that? How do we get a, a realistic view of what those deadly sins mean and what they mean in our life? And of course we know that in New Orleans all of them will be on display this week. Go out to a parade and you'll see most of them. And if we do a little self-inventory We can kind of go through our own life and go, check, got it, did it, had it, thought it, surfed it, all of them. And so the idea behind getting untangled is sort of like the imagery of the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, but if you, for me, when I take the Lord's Supper, I I remember what Paul wrote about it when he gave instructions as to how we are to take the Lord's Supper. He says, let a man examine himself. As you consider the the, the things that Jesus did, the body, the blood, that we are to examine ourselves in light of that and, and to bring to mind how much we need this body and blood in our own life. And so for me, this untangled is, how do we get out from under that? The the purpose is to make us look inward. And so I went over to Hebrews. I found the word untangled, or at least the word entangled. And uh, it's in the first couple of verses of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. But let me back up a little bit. Hebrews is an interesting book in itself because it was written as a word of encouragement. We don't really know who it was for because the word to the Jews or to the Hebrews is not really there, but the context of the, of the whole of it lets us know that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was trying to help the Hebrews, the Jewish people, understand that they didn't need to go back to their old way of sacrifice. Let me try to make that clearer. Jewish Christians in this point in history, we're trying to understand what it meant to move from a system of sacrifices where you had to do stuff. You look back in Exodus 29, the Scripture says, every morning sacrifice a lamb. Every evening sacrifice a lamb. Just in case you'd sin during the day, nightly sacrifice. Just in case you'd sin during the night, morning sacrifice. And so when John described Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's introducing to us this, this new way of thinking that, that, that it's not what we can do. It's what has already been done on our behalf. That is the cross, the resurrection, the, the, the blood of Jesus that was shed, the fact that he conquered death. All of that is what has been done so that it's not a matter of what we do. And so when the writer of Hebrews spends the first 10 chapters talking about the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is all, that Christ is in all, that what he did was enough, that his blood was shed. And so he, he spends 10 chapters telling these Jewish Christians that even though for them it may make more sense to go back to the old way of sacrifice, because I get to do something, right? I sin, I get to do something about it. Not unlike the, 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 the confession that, that, that's, that the Catholics practice. If I sin, I do something about it. The priest tells me what it is I'm supposed to do, and it's all good. It's all clean. It's something that I do. The writer of Hebrews is trying to say it's not about that. It's about what has already been done on your behalf. And so in chapter 11, he says, here's some great stories about people who were faithful people who lived during old testament times when there was this covenant when there was this system of sacrifices when there was stuff you had to do here are some people that lived during those times and at the end of the chapter they're pronounced faithful they they were saved or they were they were rewarded on the basis of their faith and yet their faith was not complete he says in the last verse of that chapter because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect except for the sacrifice of Christ except for the cross except for the resurrection except for the gospel even those heroes of faith in chapter 11 couldn't be saved by the way I like chapter 11 and one of the reasons I really, really like it is that I was reading through it one time and in verse 32 I caught the name Samson. And I went, okay, wait a minute. I know his story from Judges. What did he ever do that was faithful? I mean, he was pretty much guided by lust and manipulation and greed and power and pride. Pretty much the only thing he ever did that you might call faithful is that he killed a bunch of people as he was killing himself. So then I started reading all the backstories. And there's nobody in Hebrews 11 that's not flawed. Nobody in that, that whole hall of faith that doesn't have some serious issues. And I'm going, okay, I, I get that. Now I travel back through anger, got it, greed, uh-huh. All of the seven and all of Paul's list, we can pretty much all go through there and go, man, I'm, I'm without hope. Because I've done all of that and then we get to Hebrews 12 chapter, chapter 12 verse 1 and he uses the word therefore to refer back to that he says so we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race underline that in your scripture run with endurance the race he's talking about discipleship he's talking about what it is to to go from a a relationship where we trusted Christ instead of all of that stuff we trusted Christ to forgive us our sin we trusted Christ and what he has done so he said that's the race that we have begun so let's run it with endurance fixing our eyes on Jesus verse 2 the author perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him Endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, let me give you four ideas to kind of hang your hat on and, and how we might get untangled. And uh, they're all going to come from these two verses, and, and then I may add a little bit from the third verse, but we'll keep it simple today. First idea I want you to kind of hang your hat on is to consider the faithful witnesses. So, we get to go back to chapter 11. And think about the stuff that all those people did. And we, we've got that whole long list. We've got Noah. We've got Abraham. We've got all those faithful people, Moses. And all of those are described as people of faith. And so the, the way we usually read this, or at least I have. I'm just a youth minister. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. So we've we got this picture that all these people are cheering for us, Right? Go, Alan, go. You're running good. Keep running, keep running. Well, I run some, slowly. And it used to be that the New Orleans half marathon ended in Tad Gormley Stadium. So it was kind of a cool deal. You would run through the the streets of New Orleans, and then you'd hit City Park and down Roosevelt Mall, and then you'd hang a left and run through the tunnel into the, the stadium with the crowd of, tens, mostly the spouses or children of the people that were struggling to finish this deal, but that's not the point. The point is you get to go into a stadium and at least in your mind's eye, you picture a stadium full of people chanting your name. So we got this idea that that's the way it is. We consider these faithful witnesses and now they've run their race. And, and they're at the finish line saying, go get them, Alan. Why in the world would they be looking at me? <laughs> they're with God. <laughs> they, they wouldn't be looking at us. Their focus is not on us. It's, 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 it's to consider the faithful witnesses in this, this way of discipleship. It's not that they are looking at us and cheering us on. It's that we are looking at them and the example that they gave us. No, Noah wasn't perfect. No, Moses wasn't perfect. No, Samson wasn't perfect. Jephthah, Barak, Gideon, Samuel, David, none of them were perfect. And yet they kept in the race. They kept running this thing. They kept trusting in the relationship that they had with God and that that's what would sustain them through all the struggles that they would have of with anger and lust and greed and envy and covetousness and pride and then Paul's list. It was sort of this acknowledgement that it's not about the perfection of those that are running in the race. It's that they keep Running the race, consider the faithful witnesses. Second thing that kind of goes next, says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, they have run the race well, let us lay aside every encumbrance. So confront the unnecessary weight. I choose the word unnecessary because there's a contrast that's set up in this verse. In just a minute, we'll talk about sin. But he chooses, the writer of Hebrews chooses to use two different words. He says there's a a weight, there's an encumbrance, and then there's a sin. And the word weight there has to do with uh, mass. It has to do with, uh, with bulk, that which holds us back. If you watch The Biggest Loser in, uh, in the first several episodes, the, the people there are, are so big that they struggle with even simple tasks. And later on in the show, of course, they're running marathons and stuff because they've gotten rid of the excess weight. And the connotation here is not so much that it's sinful, but that it's unnecessary. There's uh, blooper videos about NBA players who have gone out on the court with their warm-ups still on. And their teammates go, dude, take this stuff off. Can you imagine a, a track athlete at the starting line? Cold day. So he's got his North Face gear on and his little wool hat and maybe some gloves. Gets in the blocks looking like the Michelin Man because he's still got all that stuff on. No, the, the people in the day of the, the time that this was written, they, they ran their races with as little on as you can imagine. It wasn't really a PG race. They took it all off mostly. And they ran with as little as possible. This is really telling us about perhaps the difference between good and better and best. It's not that the stuff that's in our lives is necessarily bad. Maybe he's talking about television, or maybe he's talking about uh, uh, some way that we choose to spend our time. I don't know. For me, it, it came to mind that I love the morning newspaper. OK? I'm a little old school. I love the newspaper. And when there's a newspaper out there, I'm going to bring in the newspaper and, and I'm going to over breakfast, I'm going to read the newspaper, and there's some little voice in me says, "What about this?" You had not read this yet today. So it's not that the newspaper is a bad thing. Newspapers are relatively amoral, although the things they report are not so much. But it's not that the newspaper is bad, it's just that there are those days where I let it take precedence over something that's better and that would be filling my mind with the good news and not necessarily just the news. It would be uh, some think that maybe he's referring to the, the legalism, that, that it's not a bad thing to want to follow all the rules. It's not a bad thing to, to want to please God and to obey and to, to tithe and to attend and to do all of the things. But that can even be a trap, that it's, it's sometimes the, the following the rules would even get in the way of the relationship. So he's saying that the excess weight here is is not necessarily the bad, it's just not necessarily the best. Then he says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. The idea of the sin is that it wraps its tentacles around our feet. And it's not that we're just slow because we've got so much weight. It's that we're so entangled by this stuff, we can't run at all. And that's what this series has been talking about. That's what David has been helping us understand, that there's a lot of nuance to anger. And there's a lot of, uh, of nuance to greed. And there's a lot of nuance to sloth and all the other things. There's, there's a lot about that, but cumulatively, collectively, they just, they just wrap their, their little tentacles around our feet and we can't move at all. And so the idea here is that we would confess the deadly sins. Let's spend a little bit of time on this one. Some have made a big deal over the definite article in front of sin, the sin. Instead of just a collection of sins, and of course, you know, Paul's list, Solomon's list, they were... All pretty extensive. Here's a bunch of them. But well, then what is the sin? Which, which one of the seven is the sin? Which one of Paul's list is the sin? Or is it yet another sin that we hadn't thought about? Some writers have said, okay, the mother of all sins is unbelief. And maybe that's what it's talking about when it gives the, the definite article that, that, that for us to let our anger become unchecked is to uh, not believe that God can help us deal with it. The uh, uh, greed or, or sloth or any of the rest of them, that, that the, the lack of belief, the lack of faith, because chapter 11, that's what it's talking about. Well, maybe that is and maybe that isn't. The, the way the language is here, it could go either way. It could, it, it could be the sin as if there's one, or it could be just sin. Don't let sin entangle you. So what do we do about it? We confess it. Flip over with me to 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. The scripture says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, this is almost a tip of the hat to the Jewish Christians who, who wanted to be able to do something. And, and, and it appeals to, to people like me. I, I want to do something. I want to I work. I want to I show God how serious I am. So God says, okay. Get that list of sins going, check off what's in your life, and now confess. Now, the word confess, a lot of times we think if we watch CSI or any of the crime shows where they lock a guy in a room and ask him a lot of questions until finally he writes out uh, an admission that he did the crime. We tend to think that that word means reveal. That we reveal our sins. Okay, I I confess. God, you didn't know I did this, but I did. Really? (laughs) Can't you imagine me saying, now I lay me down to sleep. Oh, by the way, God, I was greedy. I I was angry. I was slothful. And then God goes, (gasps) tell me you didn't do that, Alan. Say it ain't so. God doesn't already know. God doesn't, doesn't already know that I've done all those things. He didn't know even before I did them that I would do them. It's kind of like a, a, a being a dad. You know, our kids do something. And we know they did it. And they know they did it. And they know we know they did it. And we know they know, we know they did it. But finally they come and say, I did it. And that's confession. It's just, it's clear in the air. It's this this agreement. So if we agree with God that these things can sneak into our lives, and sometimes they have snuck into our lives, we realize that our discipleship is hindered. That we can't run this race. We've got this stuff tangling all up in our feet. And so we, we are given sort of a checklist so that we can have the opportunity then to confess those things. And so the, the next verse says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. That's the agreement part. So we agree with him and we begin to deal with him. So he says, we deal with the sin, we lay aside the weight, we consider the witnesses, and then here's where we go from here. Let us run with endurance the race that is before us. Some have said that that phrase, let us run with endurance the race that is before us, that that's the key to the whole chapter. That that's, that's the key to understanding the transition between all these famous faith people in chapter 11 that we look at and go, well, really, not so faithful. But God says, okay, that's the whole point of faith is that they can't do it, but I can and will and did, and that the work of faith was done on the cross. It's not anything you can do, but you can acknowledge that these worldly things try to creep into your lives, you confess those things, you clear the air, and now let's run the race. So the last thing I want you to think about is to continue with the perfect Savior. Continue with the perfect Savior. In a race, focus is a pretty big deal. All right, I, I, I watched the Olympics some, and those <laughs> Who doesn't like the combination of skiing and guns? That's just got to be the best Olympics thing ever. But their focus is pretty important. I mean, you, they can't just be looking at their skis all the time because then they don't see what's in front of them. And they can't be looking beside them. That's no bueno. They, they, they would then kind of veer off track. And they sure can't look behind them. And especially when they get those guns out, we want focus, Right? And so what the Scripture is saying here is that our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus. Our our eyes have to be fixed on the only solution, the only way to get untangled. Our eyes have to be fixed only on that. Not looking at other people and what they're doing. Not spending too much time looking behind us at what we've done. Certainly not looking at anything as a solution other than the spiritual one, which is Christ. He, the two words that are used there to describe Jesus, uh, author and perfecter, the word author is uh, sometimes translated pioneer. He's, he's the one that went out there first and discovered what needed to happen. He, he designed it. He was an architect. He was the, uh, the one who, who, who designed this whole deal. But not only did he design it, he implemented it, perfecter, completer, finisher. So he is the author, the designer of this faith process, but he is also the one who made it possible through his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. So we're to fix our eyes on him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is set down at the right hand of God. I tweeted this morning I was just kind of thinking, uh, saw somebody had written the words to the children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I put it with this verse. I said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. When he was on the cross... And he contemplated the fact that he had now died to take the place of us, our, our, our what we deserve for our anger, our sloth, our lust, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What we deserve for all that is a spiritual death. But he took our place, and when he had done so, he said, What? It's finished. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we consider him. And he endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And here's why we wrote these things, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jewish Christian, they were going, you know, we liked it better when we know where we stood. If we would make this sacrifice, the ledger got cleared. If we would do this, that atoned for this. If we would do this, it took care of this. And besides that, we're starting to get persecuted for this Christianity message. So maybe we'll just go back to the old way. Maybe we'll go back to that way that was comfortable. And have got to be honest, I think a lot of us feel that way. I think that, that when we get too far out on the faith limb, when, we get, when, we, when life gets hard, maybe the sin, the sin that easily entangles us, maybe it is unbelief. Maybe it is that I don't believe God enough to speak into the life of a, a wayward child. Maybe I do not believe God enough to, to trust him that, that a job situation is going to work itself out. Maybe my, maybe my belief is, is the thing that's beginning to tangle up my feet because I can't run this race because I'm paralyzed by the things that I can do or I can't do. And the writer of Hebrews says that's the whole point. You can't he did. <laughs> you, you want to focus on your fears, or and, and yes, do the inventory. Examine yourself as you take the supper. But at the end of the day, it is Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. And the reason we consider him who endured such hostilities is so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. Will we trust the Father that it is finished? Will we trust him that, yes, we're going to be made aware of these deadly sins and then some that show up in our lives? Are we going to be paralyzed with fear and guilt and shame and all the other things that wrap their tentacles around our feet? Or are we going to say it is finished? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. God, if there is one here who is paralyzed by guilt or shame or doubt, can this be the day that they say it is finished? Can this be the day that they speak to a pastor or a friend and say, I want to receive Christ into my life. I want to be on that disciple's journey where it's not about what I do or what I don't do, but it's about that I trust that what you have done is enough. That your grace and your mercy that you made available because you died on the cross, that those are the things that allow me to deal with all these sins that keep showing up in my life. God, if there's one here who is beginning to lose heart, perhaps wondering if this whole discipleship thing is worth it, I thank you for the book of Hebrews that was written to people like that to remind us that what you've done is enough, that you're sufficient, that you are Christ, and that you tell us these things so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. I pray that you would encourage the body even today In Jesus' name.